I thought it was really smart of him to continue the framing as within the UN Charter. There was one point where he specifically said their goal is essentially to turn our land and our resources as a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. Welcome to a special edition of Global Dispatches. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. All this week, in partnership with the United Nations Foundation, we are bringing you daily updates from the opening of the 78th United Nations General Assembly. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, and the start of what is known as the General Debate. This is the parade of presidents and prime ministers who address the world from the rostrum in the General Assembly Hall. The day follows a similar pattern each year. The Secretary General kicks off, followed by the new president of the General Assembly, who is Dennis Francis of Trinidad and Tobago. By tradition, Brazil goes first, then the president of the United States. Joining me to discuss these speeches and more is Anjali Dayal, Associate Professor of International Politics at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus, and Maya Ungar of the International Crisis Group. We caught up just as Volodymyr Zelensky concluded his first in-person UNGA address since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That is our first segment today. Our second segment features Buti El Meheri, UN Foundation Next Generation Fellow for Climate, who previews some of the climate-focused themes this week. This conversation features some really expert insights on what is happening at the United Nations General Assembly today and throughout the week. If you want even more UNGA coverage, please sign up for our newsletter at globaldispatches.org. For now, here is Maya Ungar and Anjali Dayal. Welcome, you both. Thanks for taking time out of a very busy UNGA Tuesday for speaking with me about the leaders' speeches and other happenings around the United Nations today and this week. Before we start, though, I'm just going to have each of you introduce yourselves so that the audience can recognize your voice. Maya, why don't you go ahead? Thank you, Mark. My name is Maya Ungar, and I am the UN Project Officer at the International Crisis Group based here in New York. I'm Anjali Dale. I'm an Associate Professor of International Politics at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus. We are speaking about seven minutes after Volodymyr Zelensky concluded his first in-person address to the United Nations General Assembly since Russia's invasion. So, Maya, what's your big take, high-level reaction to Zelensky's address just now? As you mentioned, this is very much immediate reactions as we all just finished listening to Zelensky's speech. You know, we as Crisis Group recommended that for his time at UNGA, there really needs to be a direction towards the global south. And he really succeeded in in framing Russia's aggression as a problem for all, not just a problem for Ukraine. He focused on particular issues that would have more global implications, that would help to generate more sympathy for the cause, focusing on the weaponization of food, of energy, children as well. 
And I thought it was really smart of him to continue the framing as within the UN Charter. There was one point where he specifically said their goal is essentially to turn our land and our resources as a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. I think there were a lot of concerns going into this conversation that, or into Zelensky's speech, that he might focus it too much in a way that would isolate the global south or that would pander too much to his Western allies. But I think he and the Ukrainian government have recognized that he has opportunities to do that in other places. And the speech really did focus on catering towards the global south in that note. I will mention that he didn't mention the SDGs at all. So one of the main points of concern that we've seen the global south bring up about Zelensky being here is that it would take away oxygen from the SDG summit. And I think he could have benefited from having some direct reference to the SDGs and the importance of that kind of development. On your point about catering to the global south and discussing food, one quote that I jotted down from his that I thought was to that point, he said, quote, Russia is launching the food prices as weapons, which again, directly links Russia's invasion of Ukraine to food inflation that is experienced most acutely in the developing world. Anjali, what was your big picture take on Zelensky's speech? Yeah, very similarly, I thought, you know, he continued something that Ukraine has been doing, I think, really effectively throughout the war so far, which is that, you know, they've launched this diplomatic campaign that really anchors the threats that Ukraine is facing to the threats that the world is facing, you know, anchoring them in threats to the UN Charter, noting that this is a threat to the rules-based international order and saying, you know, Russia's goal is to turn our land, our people, our lives into a weapon against your ability to eat, your ability to protect your children, against your ability to be safe from nuclear war, against your ability to buy food. And, you know, part of the challenge is that despite having done this throughout the war pretty explicitly, pretty effectively, the war in Ukraine is dominating so much diplomatic space that the effort becomes even more important, right? So not just anchoring sort of the threat to everyone in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also the fact that that interest and that conflict crowd out other concerns, other conflicts as well. And I think to some extent, you know, bringing up issues of climate bringing up a global peace summit to which everyone is invited. You know, those are some ways of trying to mitigate that attention that Ukraine is monopolizing over other conflicts at the expense of other issues that the global South is facing. I will say that, you know, for all the talk of flagging global support, especially across the global South for Ukraine, I do think he got the loudest round of applause on arrival and on exit of anyone. Definitely. Despite the fact that the diplomatic attention may be flagging in other parts of the world, the cause remains popular. The last General Assembly vote on this demonstrates that too, right? No one wants to be the person not standing up applauding for Zelensky, right? Everyone wants to be in support vocally, not at the expense of everything else the UN is doing. But, you know, I think that that really struck me. Yeah. And just once again, it also reiterated, I think, to me, just how effective Zelensky is as a communicator and underscores just how effective good communication is to rallying public 
to your side. There is one thing I wanted to ask both of you, which I caught in his remarks, which kind of caught me by surprise. If I heard him correctly, and again, we just watched this just moments ago, he said that he was going to attend in person the Security Council session tomorrow, which is dedicated to Ukraine. Now, the president of the Security Council this month is Albania, a key U.S. ally. So on the agenda this week, tomorrow, Wednesday, is a Security Council meeting on Ukraine. Now, if I'm correct, this means that Zelensky would potentially be sitting across the table from Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, who's leading Russia's delegation. If so, that would be kind of lit. <laughs> I think lit is a good way to describe it. Um, I couldn't think although, of any other word on the spot other than just like, really? <laughs> I'm not sure. I would actually be surprised if you do see them in the same room at the same time. Mm. To my remembrance, last year, Lavrov came in, gave his speech, and then left. If I had to guess this year, you will see a similar occurrence where although both Lavrov and Zelensky will be in person at the Security Council meeting tomorrow, I would be quite surprised if you end up seeing both of them actually present in the same room at the same time. But there might be someone sitting in that Russian seat, or maybe they just vacate the seat all entirely. I mean, if you do see someone sitting there, I wouldn't be surprised if you see them just on their phone, which when you saw the cameras pan to Russia during Zelensky's speech, that did happen quite a few times. Or they put an intern there or something. Yeah. So I wanted to turn now to Biden's address to the United Nations General Assembly this morning. Now, you know, if you're watching cable news, which I, I don't do often, but I had on following Biden's address, they seem to like focus their commentary on Biden's remarks towards Ukraine. But for me, watching Biden's address, what was so significant is Honestly, in my 18 years of covering the United Nations General Assembly, I don't recall a U.S. president devoting so much time and space to directly address the concerns of the developing world. Now, there's been a lot of talk this unga about how Biden is the only leader of the P5 who's here in person. You have like relatively sparse attendance by the rest of the G20, by much of Europe. And you know, there's been some commentary about how that potentially like lowers the impact of UNGA this year. But in watching Biden's speech today, he seemed to recognize that as a feature and not a bug and really tailored what I counted as probably about two thirds of his remarks towards issues related to the sustainable development goals, financing for development and other issues that are a direct concern to the developing world, like reforms at the World Bank and IMF. That was kind of interesting and notable to me. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a deeply multilateralist speech in the sense that like, you know, often even multilaterally minded U.S. presidents or even like deeply liberal institutionalist presidents like Barack Obama will get up there and talk a lot about American primacy and American interests and what the U.S. is doing for the world. This was a different kind of speech, I thought. It started with, he said, you know, we know our future is bound to yours. And he went on to sort of talk meaningfully about Yes, expanding the UN Security Council, which is something he talked about last year as well, you know, increasing both the non-permanent and permanent membership, but also talking about World Bank and IMF and WTO reform, talking about the sort of Bretton Woods institutions, pointing to 
countries that have been put multilateralists on a number of other fronts, usually in the global south, and really sort of anchoring a lot of his speech in the nitty gritty of what multilateralism does for countries that is not about U.S. primacy. And I do think that's unusual. I mean, I think, you know, there are ways that this kind of speech doesn't play very well to cable news or doesn't play very well to the sound bite. But it did seem like it was pitched to the people in that room to say, look, I showed up. I think this is important. And I want to advance a vision of multilateralism that works with you. Maya, what's your big takeaways from Biden's speech? I agree with what both of you just said about Biden seeming to speak to those that were in the room versus wanting and desiring to speak to those on cable television. I thought that it was really interesting that he seemed to frame a lot of his topics on ideas of global solidarity and common issues. It was really interesting to me that he started out with a nod to Vietnam, who, as we all know well, historically has had a very contentious relationship with the United States. And he used that beginning as a framing to say, look at this previous relationship that we've had, look at how we can build up together, form this partnership and move forward. And I think that was really meant to be a signal to many among the Global South. Throughout the speech, he also highlighted other strategic partnerships, whether that be on issues of global health, whether that be on infrastructure development, that obviously being a bit of a nod towards China and their infrastructure Belt and Road Initiative. But I thought that it was quite indicative of the way that the global narrative focused around the UN is starting to shift, there really does seem to be more of a recognition that the United Nations is not just a playground for powerful players, but instead is supposed to be a body that represents the whole of the global community. And when you have one of the most powerful players of all standing up on that biggest stage the United Nations offers, and instead of focusing as much on its own priorities, looking at showcasing where its own priorities align with that of the broader international community, I think that is quite significant. And to me, that just showed at least a degree of like geopolitical acumen, too, on the part of Biden. I mean, you said starting with a reference to Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam also has a pretty rough relationship with China. And it seems that to the extent that Biden was in his remarks seeking to woo what The Economist calls like the kind of swing states in geopolitics, it was to woo them to the American side in a time of, you know, enhanced competition with China. And that's why I just found the substance of his remarks so interesting and how they were directed, you know, mostly to the global South and the developing world. Anjali, I'll start with you on this next question. You know, beyond Zelensky and Biden, were there any other speeches of note that you caught today that you think are worth highlighting? Yeah, so I I watched everybody who spoke this morning. There you go. That's why you're on the podcast. (laughs) I wanted to point to Antonio Guterres' speech because thinking about the way that he sort of frames the speech almost as like a state of the world kind of speech. I am always interested in how dark he goes. Right, because he's been dark. He's been apocalyptic in years past. Oh, absolutely. He was not as apocalyptic 
this year as he has been in past years. He didn't talk about the Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which he did a couple of years ago, but he did very strongly repeat a message that he has put before the assembled body of world leaders for the last couple of years, which is that we have problems that we are not meeting. We have existential problems. And the key roadblock to meeting those existential problems is political will. And the political will in particular of the people sitting in front of him. And that, I think it's an unusual way to use that rostrum for him because he is not the most confrontational of secretaries general. He has spent a lot of his career, understandably perhaps, but sort of trying to be careful about where he spends the political capital that he has with influential world leaders. But he does use this space or has in the last couple of years to put a fire and brimstone vision of where the world is headed on the table and say, it is your job to meet this and you're not. He started with the relation of just devastating news from Libya and said, you know, the flood of inequities and injustice, the inability to confront the problems in our midst, this is an existential threat at a time of transition toward multipolarity. And then he said, you know, multipolarity, again, can't guarantee peace because a multipolar world needs a strong multipolar system. But our institutions are stuck in the 20th century. And like Joe Biden, he pointed to the Security Council as needing reform, but also, again, to the Bretton Woods Institution. Now, this has been, you know, a big debate and policy point for a lot of countries in the lead up to the General Assembly. But over the course of the year, these questions of international financial institutions needing reform. And, you know, Guterres' pitch is that they need reform along the lines of equity, solidarity, and universality. And he went on to say, you know, that he doesn't have illusions about the fact that reform is tied up with power politics, but he said, you know, the alternative to reform is not the status quo, it's further fracture, right? So the alternative to reform is rupture. And he added to that, like, whole bunch of other things that are falling apart right now. He mm. said you know, the global humanitarian response system, the peace and security architecture, the sort of failure to meet climate goals and sustainable development goals. And then he finished with this sort of like discussion of human rights and then technology, which I thought was really interesting because he said, we must move fast and mend things. And you know, that's obviously a play on the Silicon Valley move fast and break things ethos, right? But move fast and mend things is a different place than he's gone in the last couple of years, because I think it is still difficult and dark, but it is also sort of constructive and not exactly hopeful, right? But placed in the context of being willing to say, look, these institutions need big reform, I think points to a sort of more tangible and practical set of concerns than just, we are all going to die and it's your fault. Maya, how have you perceived Antonio Guterres' approach to diplomacy this week thus far? I think that Anjali is right in the way that she framed Guterres' speech and the way that he has been engaging. I think that, you know, there was some sound bites you saw come out on Twitter where the Secretary General was essentially saying, what power do I have but to use my voice? And I think that 
while this <laughs> can be a little bit concerning to those that want the UN to take a stronger role in the international system, I think that his framing is really in line with what we saw come out in some of his policy briefs over the summer on our common agenda. And I think what's interesting is his framing at different events he's spoken out throughout the General Assembly this year is helpful for better understanding what he is going to be bringing forward to the summit for the future next year, which will be occurring in September of 2024. And, you know, so much of what he has focused on there is how you can look at reforming this multilateral system in a way that answers the issues of this century, that answers the current geopolitical climate. And I think that he has framed in a lot of ways the UN as a supporting institution and as one which is working to build upon what member states themselves must do. And in that sense, I think both with those documents, what we're expecting to see with the Summit for the Future, as well as what he's been speaking about this week, shows that he is quite realistic about the power as well as the limits of the United Nations. And because of that, is trying to focus on invigorating member states to be moving towards these common values of solidarity and trust that he has continually mentioned, with the hope that they, instead of the UN, should really be holding the main responsibility for reforming many of these issues we see. So one leader who spoke today was Erdogan. Now, I didn't catch all of Erdogan's speech, but I did catch him seemingly cheer on Azerbaijan as overnight it launched a renewed offensive in Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, for listeners who are not aware, Nagorno-Karabakh is disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And it had been like a frozen conflict since the end of the Cold War. But about a year and a half ago, Azerbaijan launched an offensive supported by Turkey, retook or took a lot of territory and seemingly just pressed its military advantage overnight, reigniting this conflict overnight. Erdogan seemed to cheer it on. Anjali, I don't know, you probably caught more of his speech than I did. Then moments later, I saw a press release from Antony Blinken condemning Azerbaijan's offensive. How do you see the renewal of this conflict overnight impacting the rest of UNGA this year? There are a couple of ongoing diplomatic situations that seem like they are ripe to sort of shape events over the next couple of days. That's definitely one of them. Erdogan also took a fair amount of time to talk about the UN and Cyprus in great sort of often confrontational detail. The other sort of situation I was wondering about was the unfolding diplomatic situation between Canada and India, which will obviously have less impact on the next few days without heads of state there. Yeah, neither Modi nor Trudeau are here in New York in person. Yeah. So that's sort of secondary. But honestly, I'm not exactly sure how it is going to shape the thematic debates over the next couple of days. It looks like there are many key players on the ground in New York who are very willing to use meetings to sort of advance their agendas. I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that the place they'd have the, the sort of like unfolding events would have the most effect is in the bilateral meetings that everyone is having. But I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. I imagine that other than tomorrow's Security Council meeting on Ukraine, many of these countries will have to go out of their way, I think, to 
insert the conflict into other critical meetings that everyone else wants to have. Maya, any concluding thoughts on this or anything else you'd want to mention before we have to wrap up? Yeah, just on this point, I'll say I did think it was quite striking how Erdogan mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh. To quote, he said, Nagorno-Karabakh is the territory of Azerbaijan and any other status imposed will never be accepted. That doesn't really leave any room for further interpretation. He was quite comprehensive in the way that he referred to it, although right before that, he did say that they had launched a process with Armenia aiming at good neighborly relations and full normalization. You know, I do think Anjali is definitely right in the fact that the situation is expanding and changing so rapidly that I think you might have leaders a little bit hesitant to be speaking on this very loudly amidst a situation that is rapidly developing. I think that she's right in saying that a lot of the conversations around this will likely be held in behind-the-scenes bilateral meetings, which, while many pay attention to these speeches. In reality, a lot of times the real work and the real politics of UNGA does happen in these behind-the-scenes conversations. So in terms of the situation and the way that it's going to continue to unfold and impact the week, I think that I would predict people will be a little bit quieter as they watch what happens. But I do think that this issue will be brought up more than it otherwise would be, particularly in some of these bilateral conversations. Maya and Anjali, thank you so much for your time and good luck this week. Thank you. Well, good luck to you too, Mark. Big thank you to Maya and Anjali. And now here is my conversation with Abuti El Neheri, UN Foundation Next Generation Fellow for Climate. So a key through line in all of the UN General Assembly this week is, of course, climate. I am just curious to learn from you, what are some of the key climate stories that you're following this week? This week, my attention is mainly focused on the outcomes from the UN General Assembly, especially in the context of global finance reforms and emphasis on climate justice. The urgency of these discussions is heated, especially in the light of this year's July's record-breaking temperatures. I'm also keenly observing the SDG Summit's reflections as we are at the halfway to mark to the 2030 deadline. I'll be also participating at the Climate Ambition Summit, and I'm looking forward for the focus on renewable energy adoption Given the escalating global emissions and the power sector's significant contribution, the urgent need to address our energy resources and consumption patterns is, is clear. With the anticipated twofold increase in electricity consumption by 2050 and the goal to triple the renewable energy capacity in line with the 2030 clean energy breakthrough, the discussions this week are more crucial than any time ever especially during the Climate Ambition Summit. And of course, the diverse events of the Climate 
week in New York offer a comprehensive view of the multi-pronged approach required to address climate crisis, which I'll be following up over the week. Yeah, it's worth emphasizing that like not all of the action on climate is happening inside UN headquarters this week. There is a whole plethora of events focused on climate, and it really kicked off the weekend prior with a major march through the streets of New York demanding climate action. So it's good to know that you'll be kind of following all of these events. On the Climate Ambition Summit in particular, you mentioned you're participating. Like, What's the nature of your participation in the Climate Ambition Summit on Wednesday? So, Mark, during the Climate Ambition Summit, I'll be there for the full day, participating in the sessions, and following up with the most recent updates when it comes to the road to the COP28. As you know that the Climate Ambition Summit and the SB 58, which is the Bonn Climate Conference that happened in June, these are two pivotal moments before the COP28. And they are very crucial in determining what will be happening during the COP28 when it comes to commitments, partnerships, strategies that will be discussed and negotiated in Dubai in December. So I'm very glad you mentioned COP28. It is happening in the United Arab Emirates, in Dubai, as you mentioned. You are Emirati. I assume you're following these things very, very closely. Are there any concrete outcomes from this week in New York that you will be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not COP28 will be a success? In other words, what are some of the key decisions that must be made this week in order for COP28 to be more assuredly a successful climate negotiation? So the events of this week will serve as a crucial prelude to the COP28. As I mentioned, the commitments, partnerships, and the strategies discussed during this week will directly influence the agenda and negotiations in Dubai, particularly as the COP28 will mark the conclusion of the first global stock take under the Paris Agreement. The global stock take is basically accounting each country for the success they have done and the progress they have done towards reducing their emissions so far. It's going to happen for the first time in in, in Dubai this year. And I believe that this week will be instrumental here in New York. The discussions around more specifically the financial reforms at the UN General Assembly is important for the need of getting the loss and damage fund that was established at the COP27 to be operational during the COP28. Additionally, the insights and the collaborations emerging from this week when it comes to the Energy Transition Changemakers Initiative that was announced by the COP28 presidency. It's very important to see more stakeholders and countries taking part of this initiative, as well as one of the most important frameworks that will be kind of under the eye of a lot of least developing countries, the Global Goal on Adaptation Framework that will hopefully take its call during the COP28. Essentially, in general, this week is setting 
the stage, building momentum, and ensuring that the global community is aligned and ready for the critical tasks at the COP28. As a climate specialist, is there any particular leader, a speech, or a member of civil society that you are watching particularly closely this week and that the rest of us should be paying attention to as well? To be very honest, all the speeches of all the presidents, of all the leaders of the civil societies are important during this week. We need to take a look on them closely. We need to have an equal understanding from the leaders of the countries and the leaders of the civil societies to understand the full picture of the different views of the different people who are affected by climate change. So I don't have a specific person, but I would say in general, all the leaders and all the leaders of both the civil society and the countries. Buti, thank you so much for your time and good luck the rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you so much, Morik. Thank you to Buti, Maya, and Anjali for joining me today. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. Stay tuned tomorrow for a conversation about many of the global health events that are happening throughout UNGA and a focus on financing for development, one of the most important issues being discussed this week. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye.